Podcastle episode 257 for April 23rd, 2013. The Queen and the Cambion by Richard Bowes. Rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, or as I decree I shall be known henceforth for the duration of this episode, Her Majesty M.K., by the grace of God, of the Podcastle podcast Queen, Defender of the Faith and Empress of the Microphone on the Desk in my office. Why exactly do I get such a grand title today? Because I am this week's guest editor, and I am mad with power. I got to pick the story, I got to pick the narrator, I get to do both the intro and the outro, I get to do everything all my own way, which makes me feel a lot like Queen Victoria in today's story, The Queen and the Cambian by Richard Bowes. Author Richard Bowes is a master of the historical fantasy genre, and as such one of my personal heroes. He's a frequent contributor to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which is where today's story first appeared. He has won the World Fantasy Award twice, once in 1998 for his novella Streetcar Dreams, and again in 2009 for If Angels Fight. His most recent collection, titled The Queen, The Cambian, and Seven Others, which, in case you didn't guess, has today's story in it along with seven others, was released from Aqueduct Press just this past February. You can find out more at his website, www.rickbows.com. The story is read by Wilson Fowley, who is of course no stranger to Podcastle listeners, given that he has read more stories for Podcastle than any other narrator. And in honor of this signal accomplishment, I hereby dub him Sir Wilson of the Buttery Man Voice, and invest him with the garter of the Golden Tonsils. Arise, Sir Buttery Man! And all the rest of you, enjoy the story. The Queen and the Cambion by Richard Bowes 1. Silly Billy the Sailor King, some called King William IV of Great Britain, but never, of course, to his royal face. Then it was always, Yes, sire, and as your majesty wishes. Because certain adults responsible for her care didn't watch their words in front of a child, the king's young niece and heir to his throne heard such things said. It angered her. Princess Victoria liked her uncle, and knew that King William the Fourth always treated her as nicely as a boozy, confused former sea captain of a monarch could be expected to, and much of the time rather better. Often when she greeted him, he would lean forward, slip a secret gift into her hands, and whisper something like, "'Discovered this in the late king your grandfather's desk at Windsor.' These generally were small items, trinkets, jewels, mementos, long-ago tributes from minor potentates that he'd found in the huge half-used royal palaces, stuck in his pocket, and as often as not remembered to give to his niece. The one she found most fascinating was a piece of very ancient parchment, which someone had pressed under glass hundreds of years before. This came into her possession one day when she was twelve, as King William passed Victoria and her governess on his way to the royal coach. His Britannic Majesty paused and said in her ear, "'It's a spell, little cub. Put your paw in mine.' Victoria felt something in her hand and slipped it into a pouch under her cloak, while the sailor king lurched by as though he was walking the quarter-deck of a ship in rough water. "'Every ruler of this island has had it, and many of us have invoked it,' he mumbled, 
while climbing the carriage steps. She followed him. To use in times of great danger to Britain, she whispered. He leaned out the window. Or on a day of doldrums and no wind in the sails, he roared as if she was up in a crow's nest, his face red as semi-rare roast beef. You'll be the monarch and damn all who'd say you know. Victoria didn't take the gift from under her cloak until she was quite alone in the library of the dark and dreary palace at Kensington. It was where she lived under the intense care of her mother, the widowed Duchess of Kent, a German lady, and Sir John Conroy, a handsome enough Irish army officer of good family. The Duchess had appointed Conroy controller of her household. Between them they tried to make sure the princess had no independence at all. Victoria really only got out of their sight when King Billy summoned her to the royal court. Nobody at Kensington ever used the library. She went to the far end of that long room, lined with portraits of the obscure daughters and younger sons of various British kings, many with their plump consorts and empty-eyed children. Victoria pushed aside a full-length curtain, and in the waning daylight looked at the page. She deciphered a bit of the script and discovered words in Latin that she knew. She saw the name Arturus, which made her gasp. Other words just seemed to be a collection of letters. Then, for fear that someone was coming, she hid it away behind a shelf full of books of sermons by long-dead clergymen. It was where she kept some other secret possessions, for she was allowed very little privacy. She knew the pronunciation for the Latin. By copying several of the other words and showing them to her language tutor, she discovered they were Welsh. Her music teacher, born in Wales, taught her some pronunciation, but became too curious about a few of the words she showed him. Victoria then sought out the old stablemaster, who spoke the language, including some of the ancient tongue, and could read and write a bit. He was honoured and kept her secret when the princess practised with him. One evening, when she had learned all the words and her guardians were busy, Victoria went to the library, took out the page, and slowly read it aloud. She wasn't quite finished when a silver light shone on the dusty shelves and paintings. Before her was a mountaintop with the sun shining through clouds. In the air, heading her way, sailed a man who rode the wind as another might a horse. In his hand was a black staff topped with a dragon's head. His grey cloak and robes showed the golden moon in all its phases. His white hair and beard whipped about as the wind brought him to the mountaintop. At the moment he alighted, he noticed Victoria. A look of such vexation came over his face that she stumbled on the words and couldn't immediately repeat them. He and the mountaintop faded from her sight. She, however, remembered what she'd seen. Victoria was no scholar, but the library at Kensington Palace did contain certain old volumes, and she read all she could find about Arthur, and especially about Merlin. An observant child like Victoria knew John Conroy was more than the Duchess's controller. She understood it was his idea to keep her isolated and to have her every move watched. From an early age, she knew why. She heard her uncle tell someone in confidence, but with a voice that could carry over wind, waves, and cannon fire, The mad old man, my father, King George that was, had a coachload and more of us sons. But in the event, only my brother Kent, before he died, produced an heir, fair, square, and legitimate. So the little girl over there stands to inherit the crown when I go under. If the king did go under before she was eighteen, Victoria knew, her mother would be regent. The Duchess of Kent would control her daughter and the royal court, and Conroy would control the Duchess. In the winter before her eighteenth birthday, five years after he gave her the spell, King William became very ill. 
but even in sickness he remembered what the Duchess and Conroy were up to, and though his condition was grave, he resolutely refused to die. On May 24, 1837, Victoria would become eighteen. On May 22nd, the King was in a coma, and the Duchess and her controller had a plan. From a window of the library at Kensington Palace, Victoria saw carriages drive up through a mid-spring drizzle, saw figures in black emerge. She recognized men that Conroy knew, several hungry attorneys, a minor cabinet minister, a rural justice, the secretary of a bishop who believed he should have been an archbishop. They gathered in Conroy's offices downstairs. Because the servants were loyal, the princess knew that a document had been prepared in which Victoria would cite her own youth and foolishness and beg that her mother, and her mother's wise adviser, be regent until she was twenty-one. Even those who admired Victoria would not have said the princess was brilliant, but neither was she dull or naive. She knew how much damage the conspirators would be able to do in three years of regency. She might never become free. All they needed was her signature. Understanding what was afoot, Victoria went to the shelf where the manuscript page was hidden. She wondered if she was entitled to do this before she was actually the monarch, and if the old wizard would be as angry as the last time. Victoria heard footsteps on the stairs. She looked at the pictures of her obscure and forgotten ancestors, all exiled to the library, and made her choice. The door at the other end of the library opened. The Duchess and Conroy entered with half a dozen very solemn men. "'My dearest daughter,' We have been trying to decide how best to protect you, said her mother. By the light of three candles, Victoria stood firm and recited the Latin, rolled out the Welsh syllables the way she'd been taught. Duchess and accomplice exchanged glances. Madness was commonplace in the British dynasty. George III had been so mad that a regent had been appointed. They started toward Victoria, then stopped and stared. She turned and saw what they did a great stone hall lit by shafts of sun through tall windows. The light fell on figures, including a big man crowned and sitting on a throne. Victoria saw again the tall figure in robes adorned with golden moons in all their phases. In his hand was the black staff topped with a dragon's head. This time his hair and beard were iron grey, not white. He shot the king a look of intense irritation. The king avoided his stare and seemed a bit amused. Merlin strode out of the court at Camelot, and the royal hall vanished behind him. Under his breath he muttered, A curse upon the day I was so addled as to make any oath to serve at the beck and call of every half-wit or lunatic who planted a royal behind on the throne of Britain. Then he realized who had summoned him to this dim and dusty place, and his face softened just a bit. Not a monarch yet to judge by her attire, but soon enough she would be. Victoria gestured toward the people gaping at him. Merlin was accustomed to those who tried to seize power using bloody axes, not pieces of paper, but a wizard understands the cooing of the dove, the howl of the wolf, and the usurper's greed. He leveled his staff, and blue flames leaped forth. The documents Conroy held caught fire, and he dropped them. The red wig on one attorney and the ruffled cuffs of the bishop's secretary also ignited. Since none of them would ever admit to having been there, none would ever have to describe how they fled— the men snuffing out flames, barely pausing to let the Duchess go first. When they were gone, Merlin erased the fire with a casual wave. Easy enough, he thought. Nothing like Hastings or the Battle of Britain. Shortly he'd be back in Camelot, giving the King a piece of his mind. Lord Merlin, the young princess began, we thank you. 
A wizard understands a bee and a queen equally, and both can understand a wizard. Merlin spoke, and she heard the word majesty in her head. He dropped to one knee and kissed her hand. For young Victoria, this was their first meeting. For Merlin, it was not. Time was a path that crossed itself again and again, and memory could be prophecy. Later in her life, earlier in his, this queen would summon him. He had a certain affection for her, but in his lifetime he'd already served all four of the Richards, five or six of the Henrys, the first Elizabeth, the ever tiresome Ethelred, Saxon Harold, Norman William, and a dozen others. He waited for her to dismiss him. But Victoria said in a rush of words, I read that you are a Cambian born of Princess Gwenvith by the incubus Albacanix. She became a nun after your birth. The princess was enthralled. Merlin met her gaze, gave the quick smile a busy adult has for a child. One trick that always distracted monarchs was to show how they came to have power over such a one as he. The wizard waved his hand, and Victoria saw the scene after Mount Baden, the great victory which made Arthur king of Britain. That day Merlin ensorcelled seven Saxon wizards, Arthur slew seven Saxon kings, and may well have saved his sorcerer's life. For this princess, Merlin mostly hid the gore away. He showed her Arthur, and himself younger, flushed with victory and many cups of celebratory mead, as in gratitude the wizard granted the king any wish within his power to give. Neither of us knew much law, so it wasn't well thought out, he explained, and showed himself swearing an oath to come forevermore to the aid of any monarch of Britain who summoned him. But my time is precious and must not be wasted, he told her. Even this mild version left Victoria round-eyed with wonder, as was Merlin's intent. For certain monarchs, his message could be so clear and terrifying that Richard III had gone to his death on Bosworth Field, and Charles I had let his head be whacked off without trying to summon him. For a moment, wizard and princess listened and smiled at the sounds downstairs of carriages fleeing into the night. He bowed, asking if there was anything more she desired. When she could think of nothing, he bowed once more, stepped backward through the bookshelves in the wall of Kensington Palace. She watched as the great hall of the castle with its knights and king appeared, and swallowed up Merlin. 2. I am ruled by our young queen, and happily so, as is every man of fair mind in this land, said Lord Melbourne, Queen Victoria's first Prime Minister, and for a brief time that was true. Melbourne could be a bit of a wizard, producing parliamentary majorities out of nothing, or making them disappear without a trace. A few years into young Victoria's reign, gossip held she was in the palm of his hand. In fact, she found him charming, but with her mother left behind at Kensington Palace, and John Conroy exiled to the continent, the headstrong young queen was led by no one. The dusty castles and palaces in London and Windsor were lately the haunts of drunken and sometimes deranged kings. She opened them up and gathered visiting European princes and her own young equerries and ladies-in-waiting for late-night feasts and dances. Then Lord Melbourne explained to her that the people of Britain were unhappy with their monarch. "'The time has come,' he said, "'for you to find a husband, produce an heir, and ensure stability. The choice of a groom will be yours, an opportunity and apparel, like every marriage.' Victoria's first reaction was anger but she knew that few women of any rank got to choose their husbands. Her choices were wide. The eligible princes of Europe paraded through Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. Victoria and the Grand Duke Alexander of Russia danced the wild mazurka. Young equerries of her staff had her picture on lockets next to their hearts, 
in the hope that she might decide to marry into her nobility and select one of them. The nation was fascinated with its legendary past, and so was its queen. She dreamed of sending the candidates on quests, having them do great deeds, but she knew that wasn't possible. Victoria's resentment of the task made her unable to decide among the candidates. Naturally, everyone grew impatient, the potential grooms, the government, and the people of England. As the situation worsened, the Queen considered invoking Merlin, but she felt intimidated. Then Melbourne himself said the future of Britain hung on her decision. She thought this surely was a moment to summon the wizard. One evening in her private chambers she drew out the parchment and ran through the invocation. Immediately the light of the oil lamps in her room was drowned by sunlight shining on ocean waves, pouring through windows of clearest glass into a room blue as the sea around it. Despite his robes with the golden moon in all its phases, it took her a few moments to recognize the tall figure with dark hair and beard standing over a giant tortoise that rested on an oaken table. Victoria watched fascinated as he stopped what he was doing and said goodbye effusively but quickly to a figure with liquid green eyes and saucy silver back flippers. The Sea King's daughter and her palace disappeared as he strode into Victoria's private drawing room. Merlin, in the full flush of his wizardry, had just murmured, Griffins and Gilfoils, Marjoram and Unicorn Mange, the heart of Diana's own rabbit soaked in the blood of hummingbirds from the Emperor's gardens in far Cathay. Then he'd felt the summons, turned, seen Victoria, and lost track of the spell he was working. But a summons, when it came, had to be obeyed. It could originate at any point in the long history of Britain's monarchy from the Battle of Baden on, and each caught him at a moment in his life when he was deep into weaving magic and casting spells. At his most powerful, he was at his most vulnerable. He stepped out of a place where each drinking cup had a name and every chair an ancestry into a room with walls covered by images of flowers and pictures of bloodless people. The floor was choked with furniture and every single surface was covered with myriad small objects. Merlin had encountered Victoria when he was just a youth and she was middle-aged. That meeting would, of course, not have happened to her yet. Now, in her private apartments at Windsor Palace, he knelt before Victoria, whose expression was full of curiosity about the tortoise, the palace, the creature with the flippers, and him. But what she said was, I brought you here because my Prime Minister and my people have decided I must marry for the good of Britain. I need your help to make the right decision. And he told her, as patiently as he could, in the palace of the Sea King's daughter, as an act of charity, I was working a spell to restore the zest of life to an ancient tortoise. It houses within itself the soul of Archimedes, the great mage of legendary times. This is the sort of favor I hope someone might someday perform if I ever needed it. It was all about to come together, ingredients at hand, incantation memorized, pentagrams and quarter circles drawn, the tortoise staring up with hope in its eyes. She sat amazed by this and by the man, dark-bearded and thirty years younger than when she'd seen him a few years before. Victoria dreamed of turning her kingdom into a kind of Camelot, a land of castles, enchanted woods, knights in armor, and maidens under sleeping spells floating down rivers. She looked at Merlin now and thought of how perfectly he would fit into such a world. Merlin understood he was young, vain, and used to being wanted. He found himself liking her, 
but memories of the complications and quarrels after an extended tumble with Elizabeth I reminded him of how unwise such liaisons could be. His interest at that moment was getting back as quickly as possible to the life he'd had to leave. Victoria watched him stand at the floor-length windows and stare out into the night. When he gestured, one window blew open. Any wizard is a performer, and Merlin intended to bedazzle her. He held out his right arm, candlelight danced, and a bird appeared. The shadow of a raptor rested on his wrist and seemed to flicker like a flame. Merlin had summoned a questing spirit, the ghost of the Lord of Hawks. He whistled a single note, and it became solid, all angry, unblinking eyes and savage beak. The wizard filled a clear crystal bowl with water and said, Your Majesty, give me the name of a suitor. She named the Grand Duke Alexander of Russia. Merlin held the hawk near the bowl, which was so clear that the water seemed to float in air. He whispered the Grand Duke's name and looked at the surface of the water. On it he saw Alexander's fate, a winter scene with blood on the snow. An anarchist had hurled the bomb that tore the Tsar apart. Merlin knew Victoria was not a vicious soul. If she saw this particular piece of the future, it would be hard for her to keep it a secret from the Tsar-to-be, and it was best not to upset the balance of the world. Undoing that would require more magic than he had. So he looked at the young queen and shook his head. This one was not suitable. She looked, but he had already cleared away the image. Who is your majesty's next tutor? Victoria spoke the name. Merlin relayed it to his medium, and the image of a mildly retarded Prince of Savoy floated in the bowl. He shook his head, she looked relieved, and they ran through some more European royalty. Merlin knew the man he was looking for, the one she actually had married. He'd seen pictures galore at that time in her future and his past when he'd been summoned by this queen. She stared at Merlin as she smiled and said, Lord Alfred Paget. This was the most dashing of her young courtiers. A royal equerry of excellent family, he made no secret of his romantic love for his queen. She in turn was charmed and more than a bit taken with Paget. He would be her choice if she decided to marry one not of royal birth but Merlin knew that wasn't the name he was looking for. When an image floated on the water, it actually made Merlin grin. He let Victoria see the once-dashing Paget, fat, self-satisfied, and seventy years old. "'Oh, dear, this will not do,' she said with a horrified expression. Then she and the wizard laughed. This search for a husband was far more pleasant than much of what he did in service to the Baden Oath. Merlin had seen an unfaithful royal princess killed in Paris by flashing lights and a willful runaway machine. He had visited a distant time when the King of Britain was not much more than a picture that moved. Victoria gave the name and title of Albert, Prince of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. A glance at the face floating on the water was all Merlin needed. This was the one he'd been waiting for. Albert would die long before Victoria did, and she would mourn him for the rest of her life. A hardier husband might be in order, but Albert was the one she was destined to marry, and that's how it would be. The image floating in the bowl was flattering. Merlin invited the queen to look, indicated his approval, and congratulated her. His task done, Merlin prepared to leave. Victoria realized this and looked stricken. Anyone, be they human or cambion, enjoys being found attractive, and to have won the heart of a queen was better still. Merlin bowed deeply to the monarch and wished her great happiness in her marriage. As he strode out of her presence, Victoria saw the tortoise that contained the soul of Archimedes and the sun dancing on the waves outside the palace and the lovely daughter of the one who rules the tides.
The queen noted every detail, and wondered if her kingdom could ever contain anything so beautiful. She wrote a letter to Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, as she thought of Merlin. 3. Twenty-five years into her reign, Her Majesty has abandoned her responsibilities. Since poor Albert died, I hear she wears nothing but mourning clothes. The processes of government demand the public presence of a monarch. And talks to the trees at Windsor Palace like her daft grandfather did. No one in her royal household, her government, and especially her family, dares to broach the subject to her. Curtsies to them trees as well, I got told. Isolated as a monarch is, Victoria heard the nonsense her people were saying. She knew they said she talked to her late husband as she walked the halls of Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle, of Balmoral in Scotland and Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. And here they were right, sometimes she did. More than anything else, what she had lost with the death of the man to whom she'd been married for twenty years was the one person in Britain who could speak to her as an equal. She still spoke to him, but there was no reply. She felt utterly alone. At Osborne House, after a day with little warmth in the sun, she stood at a window with a wind coming in from the sea and thought of Merlin. Indeed, with its graceful Italianate lines, fountains, and views of the water, Osborne was Victoria's attempt to evoke the glimpses she'd caught of the palace of the Sea King's daughter. She envied that royal family as she did no other. In the years of her marriage she sometimes remembered the handsome wizard of their last meeting, and always with a pang of guilt. It almost felt as if she had betrayed the marriage. In her widowhood, though, she thought about him more often. That evening at Osborne, Victoria demanded she be completely alone in her private apartments. The Queen debated with herself as to whether this was a time of danger to the crown, or, as her uncle had said, a day of doldrums and no wind in the sails. Victoria finally decided it was a good deal of both. She took the glass-bound page out of its hiding-place and read the summons aloud. Immediately she saw half-naked people in savage garb looking up at a huge picture that moved. It showed some kind of carriage without horses racing down a dark, smooth road. As monarch of a forward-looking nation, the queen had been shown zoetropes and magic lanterns. This appeared far more like real life, except that it moved too fast. Her royal train was always an express, and its engine could attain speeds of almost fifty miles an hour, but that was as nothing to what this machine seemed to do. A man, who looked familiar, like a distant cousin perhaps, sat in it smiling. "'In this driver's seat every one is a king,' he said. The queen couldn't know that she'd just had a glimpse of a distant successor— in the year 2159, King Henry X had on a permanent loop in his offices what he called My Aging Court. The great triumph of his reign was being named spokesperson for Chang'an Ford Honda, the world's mightiest automaker. Victoria saw that the people who had been looking up at the image were now frozen, staring at a figure running straight toward her. This one had long dark hair but no sign of a beard, was tall, but not quite as tall as the Merlin she remembered. He looked very young. Instead of robes, he wore what Victoria identified as some form of men's underclothes, a thing about which she made a point of knowing nothing. As he stepped into her room, she saw emblazoned on the shirt the lion and the unicorn, the royal crest, directly over his heart. Victoria had sons, and she placed this boy as sixteen at most. She stared at him and said, "'You're just a child. Who are you? Where are your proper clothes, and how did you get here?' 
Merlin, after a moment of surprise, looked this small woman in black directly in the eyes, which none had done since Albert. Victoria heard him say, I am Merlin, the Cambion of Albercanics and Gwynedd. I was apprenticed to Galapas, the hermit of the Crystal Cave, a disagreeable old tyrant. One morning, running through my spells, I found myself summoned by Henry the Tenth, King of Britain. I was working a great magic on his courtiers when you called me here. He glanced down at the soft clothes and shoes which still puzzled him. And this is the livery of that king. He seemed confused. When the young wizard first arrived in 2159, King Henry peered at him over a glass and said, Not what I expected. Just curious as to whether this old piece of parchment actually worked. Needed something to remind myself and others of the old mystique of royalty. Perhaps you could turn a few advertising people into mice. It'll teach them to respect me and the monarchy in its last days. Victoria saw in this confused, gangling lad the man she'd encountered. The queen realized that King Arthur and the Baden Oath were well in his future, and that he didn't understand what had happened to him. It occurred to her that the child of a demon and a princess who became a nun might be as separate and alone as she was. "'Your attire simply won't do,' she said. Merlin discovered that, unlike King Henry, this monarch was greatly respected. All the servants deferred to her, and some courtiers were even afraid. The queen had a trusted footman and page-boy dressed this stranger in clothes her sons had outgrown. Merlin hated the infinite buttons and hooks, the itching flannel and stiff boots. Victoria passed him off as a young visiting kinsman. From the Anhalt Latvia cousins. Merlin remembered King Henry, so full of strange potions and drinks, he sometimes had trouble standing and often couldn't remember who Merlin was. The young wizard had tried not to show how bedazzled he was by the magic of that court, lights that came and went with the wave of a hand, cold air that seeped out of walls to cool a kingdom where it was always hot outdoors, unseen musicians who beat drums, sang, played harps of incredible variety through the day and night without tiring. The king's entourage was so amazed by Merlin's spells of invisibility and the way he could turn them into frogs and back into courtiers that they lost any interest in their monarch and flocked around him. They persuaded Merlin to surrender his own rough robes and gave him shorts, t-shirts, and soft shoes like everyone else in the kingdom. He had never worn clothes with legs or felt fabric as light. All he knew for certain was that he didn't want to return to the crystal cave and the hermit. He spent some amazing days and light-filled nights in the court of 2159. Victoria, everyone agreed, seemed more cheerful since the appearance of her strange relative. The two of them took walks together, and he showed her nixies riding in on the morning waves and sprites dancing by moonlight. He turned her pug-dog into a trained bear and turned it back again. Merlin didn't understand this world in which palaces and castles all looked utterly indefensible, ruins had been built just to be ruins, and the Queen's knights seemed an unlikely band of warriors without a missing eye or gouged-out nose among them. On their walks, Victoria sometimes ran on about wanting to create a court full of art and poetry like King Arthur at Camelot. It amazed her that he understood none of this, so she told him the bits and pieces she had learned over the years about the Baden Oath and Arthur's kingdom. The young mage was fascinated. Once she made Merlin sit through a chamber music concert and talked afterward about the melodies of the wonderful Herr Mendelssohn, to whom I could listen forever. He told her about the court of her descendant, Henry X, where invisible musicians played all day and all night. He could have told her more about the future of her kingdom, but out of respect and even affection he never much mentioned her descendant, never described seeing King Henry in a false crown, armor, and broadsword, quaff 
royal English ale from a horn cup and signify his approval. Never said how he'd sampled the ale and found it so vile he spat it out. When he'd finished that endorsement, the king had turned and seen the shocked expression on young Merlin's face. He said, I'm the last, you know. I'm preserved in so many formats that they'll never need another king for their ads. I've no children that I know of, and no one is interested in succeeding me. I'm sorry I let you see all this. He started to cry great drunken tears. Merlin walked away as quickly as he could. He strode into the room where His Majesty's greatest promotional moments played on a screen. He didn't know where he was going, but he headed for a door in the blazing hot outdoors. When some of His Majesty's courtiers tried to stop him, he froze them in place with a spell. At that moment of his magic, Victoria's summons rescued him. For that, and her stories, he would always be grateful. But he was young, male, and a wizard, and this was a queen's court with many young women attached to it. Merlin had a fine rumpus of a rendezvous in a linen closet with an apprentice maid of the wardrobe, and another more leisurely meeting with a young lady-in-waiting in her chamber. Spells to blank the memories of passers-by didn't quite dispel the stories. The queen steadfastly refused to hear this gossip. But she understood how keeping him there was as unnatural as imprisoning a wild animal. She ordered certain clothing to be made. One day Merlin returned to his rooms and found on the bed robes and a cloak with the moon in all its phases and fine leather boots like the ones Her Majesty had noticed older Merlin's wearing. The youth had never seen anything so splendid. He changed and went to her private rooms where she was waiting. Sir Merlin, you have fulfilled and more the tasks for which you were summoned, she said, and he saw how hard this was for her. You are dismissed with our thanks and the certainty we will meet again. Merlin bowed low, and before the royal tears came, or his own could start, he found himself hurtling backward through the centuries to the Hermit Galapas and the Crystal Cave. Merlin didn't linger there, but immediately set out across Wales, finding within himself the magic to cover miles in minutes. One story Victoria had told was of a king trying to build a castle before his enemies were upon him. Each day the walls would be raised, and each night they would be thrown down. All were in despair until a bold youth in a cloak of moons appeared. He tamed two dragons that fought every night in the caves below the castle and made the walls collapse. Merlin knew he was that youth. 4. Queen Victoria, a commentator said at her golden jubilee, inherited a Britain linked by stagecoach and reigned in a Britain that ran on rails. She ruled over a quarter of the globe and a quarter of its people. At Balmoral Castle in the Highlands, late in her reign, the Queen went into high mourning because a gamekeeper, John Brown, had died. Mrs. Brown mourns dead husband, was how a scurrilous underground London sheet put it. In fact, Brown, belligerent, hard-drinking, and rude to every person at court except Her Majesty, was the only one on earth who spoke to her as one human being to another. He died unmourned by anyone but the Queen. But she mourned him extravagantly. Memorial plaques were installed, statuettes were manufactured. He was gone, but the court's relief was short-lived. To commemorate becoming Empress of India, Victoria imported servants from the subcontinent. Among them was Abdul Karim, who taught her a few words of Hindu. For this, the Queen called him the Munshi, or teacher, and appointed him her private secretary. Soon the Munshi was brought along to state occasions, allowed to handle secret government reports, introduced to foreign dignitaries. He engaged in minor intrigue and told Her Majesty nasty stories about his fellow servants. 
The entire court wished the simple, straightforward Mr. Brown was back. Victoria's children, many well into middle age, found the Munshi appalling. The government worried about its state secrets. Indian Cobra in Queen's Parlour, the slander sheets proclaimed. The Queen would hear nothing against him, but she knew he wasn't what she wanted. Oh, the cruelty of young women and the folly of old men, Merlin cried as he paced the floor in the tower of glass that was his prison cell. Nimue, the enchantress who beguiled his declining years, had turned against him, used the skills he taught her to imprison him. When he was a boy, Queen Victoria had told him about King Uther Pendragon, whose castle walls collapsed each night. Solving that, young Merlin won the confidence of Pendragon. The birth of the king's son Arthur, hiding the infant from usurpers, the sword and the stone, the kingdom of Britain, and all the rest had followed from that. But Victoria never told Merlin about Nimue. She thought it too sad. Sired by an incubus, baptized in church, tamer of dragons, adviser to kings, I am a cambion turned into a cuckold, he wailed. Most of his magic had deserted him. He hadn't even enough to free himself. Still, he did little spells, turning visiting moths into butterflies, made his slippers disappear and reappear. Merlin knew he had a reason for doing this, but couldn't always remember what it was. Then one morning, while making magic, he found himself whisked from the tower and summoned to a room crammed full of tartan pillows and with claymore swords hung on the walls as decoration. Music played in the next room, and an old lady in black looked at him kindly. The slump of his shoulders, the unsteadiness of his stance, led the Queen of England, the Empress of India, to rise and lead him over to sit on the divan next to her. That music, you hear, is a string quartet playing a reduction of Herr Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony, she said. Musicians are on call throughout my waking hours. You told me long ago this was how things were arranged at the royal court in 2159. It was a brisk day, and they drank mulled wine. The Sovereign of Britain requires a wizard to attend her, she said, for a period of time which she shall determine. Merlin realized he was rescued, and when the Munshi walked into the room unannounced, the wizard stood to his full height. Seeing a white-bearded man with flashing eyes and sparks darting from his hands, the Munshi fled. Everyone at Balmoral marveled at the day Her Majesty put aside her secretary and gave orders that he was not to approach her. All wondered if someone else had taken his place, but no evidence of that could ever be found. People talked about the eccentricities of Queen Victoria's last years, the seat next to hers that she insisted always be kept empty in carriages, railroad cars, at state dinners, the rooms next to hers that must never be entered. At times the Queen would send all the ladies and servants away from her chambers and not let them in until next morning. Some at court hinted that all this had shaded over into madness and attributed it to heredity. Most thought it was just old age, harmless, and in its way charmingly human. In fact, a few members of her court did see things out of the corner of their eyes. Merlin could conjure invisibility, but his concentration was no longer perfect. Her Majesty, walking over the gorse at Balmoral in twilight, on the shore on a misty day at Osborne, in the corridors of Windsor Castle, would suddenly be accompanied by a cloaked figure with a white beard and long white hair. When the viewer looked again, he would have disappeared. She talked to Merlin about their prior meetings and how she cherished each of them. 
The wizard would once have sneered at the picturesque ruins and the undefendable faux castles that dotted the landscape near any royal residence. Now he understood that they had been built in tribute to the sage who'd saved the young princess, the handsome magician who had helped choose her husband, the quicksilver youth of her widowhood. When she finally became very ill at Windsor, Queen Victoria had ruled for more than sixty years. Merlin remembered that this was the time when she would die. He stayed with her, put in her mind the things he knew she found pleasing, summoned up music only she could hear. He wondered if, when she was gone, he would be returned to Nimue and the tower. She assumed the throne in the era of Sir Walter Scott, and her reign has lasted into the century of Mr. H. G. Wells, the Times of London said. In the last days, when her family came to see her, Victoria had the glass with the parchment inside it under her covers. Merlin stood in a corner and was visible only to the Queen. When her son, who would be Edward VII, appeared, Merlin shook his head. This man would never summon him. It was the same with her grandson, who would be George V. A great-grandchild, a younger son who stammered, was brought in with his brothers. Merlin nodded. This one would summon him to London decades later, when hellfire fell from the skies. The boy was called back, after he and his brothers had left, was given the parchment, and shown how to hide it. "'You are my last and only friend,' Victoria told Merlin. He held her hands when she died, and felt grief for the first time in his life. But he wasn't returned to his class prison. Uninvited, invisible, utterly alone at the funeral, he followed the caisson that bore the coffin through the streets of Windsor, carried the only friend he'd ever had to the royal mausoleum at Frogmore. We say of certain people, she was a woman of her time, an orator proclaimed. But of how many can it be said that the span of their years, the time in which they lived, will be named for them? A bit of her is inside each one of us, said a woman watching the cortege, and that, I suppose, is what a legend is. In the winter twilight, with snow on the ground, Merlin stood outside the mausoleum. I don't want to transfer my mind and soul to another human or beast, and I won't risk using that magic in getting summoned. There's no other monarch I wish to serve. He remembered the hermit of the crystal cave. Old Galapas hadn't been much of a teacher, but Merlin had learned the wizard's last spell from him. It was simple enough, and he hadn't forgotten. Merlin invoked it, and those who had lingered in the winter dusk saw for a moment a figure with white hair and beard, wearing robes with the moon in all its phases. The old wizard waved a wand, shimmered for a moment, then appeared to shatter. In the growing dark what seemed like tiny stars flew over the mausoleum, over Windsor, over Britain, and all the world. And welcome back. I hope you all liked that one as much as I did. I have to say I was really surprised when I found out that Rick has never had a story on Podcastle before. And it was one of the many reasons I picked this one. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode 251, Throwing Stones by Michelle Baker, read by Elizabeth Green Musselman. Commenters were a bit divided on this one. 
Infinite Monkey, quote, enjoyed the complete sexual inversion of the pseudo-Chinese society we are told about, and the reoccurring motif of pools and water. Flowing water is often pointed out as the strongest of things among Taoists as it wears down rock, as well as our narrator's destiny to throw stones. On the other hand, commenter Ladies and Gentlemen wasn't a big fan of the world building here. I think women are the stronger gender has been done much better elsewhere. In theory, it seemed like a neat world, but not an execution. Well, as Merlin would probably say, de gustibus non est disputandum, or there's just no accounting for taste. Anyway, thank you for those comments, and do please come and let us know what you thought of today's story at forum.escapeartists.net. And if you can't donate, tell all your friends about us. Twitter about us, tweet about us, Google about us, post about us, Facebook about us, Instagram about us, Pinterest about us, whatever you can think of to do about us would be appreciated. And that was our show for this week. On behalf of all of my scurrying little minions here at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and Dave Thompson, thank you for allowing us into your ear holes yet again. We'll be back next week with another story and Dave Thompson. That's right, Dave is back next week when he will take after all of us pretenders with a broom just like the sorcerer did his apprentice. Until then, this is M.K. Hobson for Podcastle, leaving you today my dear subjects, with a quote from another classic of historical fantasy, T.H. White's The Once and Future King. The best thing for being sad, replied Merlin, is to learn something. That's the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anatomies. You may lie awake at night listening to the disorder of your veins. You may miss your only love. You may see the world about you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor trampled in the sewers of baser minds. There is only one thing for it then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust, and never dream of regretting. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site.